All right. So we are in chapter 6 of the book. More specifically, we are in Matthew chapter 18. So this is uh, chapter 6. It starts on page 66. I am my brother's keeper. I would have loved, if we ever talked to the author, a lay flat binding on this book would be super cool. Let's see. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, to begin, were there any thoughts or questions about the previous chapter that maybe we didn't have time to cover other than what is a red shirt? Any, anything you wanted to throw out there? No? All right. I found this chapter very, um, very enlightening. Have any of you asked the question or been asked the question that Cain put to God in Genesis? Have you ever, have you ever tried Some, to... Sometimes in jest, you know. Right. We've said it, right? Yeah, right. Right. Um, More likely it's not my day to watch it. <laughs> Usually, we, I mean, I'll be honest, I've used that question. Why would someone might use that question? Why did Cain use that question? Well, in one, in one sense, trying to avoid responsibility. Yeah. You're asking me about so-and-so. I don't want to be responsible for so-and-so. Now, Cain asked the question in deceit. He started with a lie. I don't know where he is. Am I responsible for him? But this is a profound question, and I'm, I'm glad that he takes time to, to answer this question, because if we don't understand God's answer to this question, church discipline, exhorting and encouraging and sometimes rebuking our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't make any sense if we don't if we don't understand the answer to this question. What I appreciate what he does in this chapter is he takes us to Matthew 18, specifically verses 15 through 17, but before he drops us right down in there, he makes sure that we understand the broader context of this chapter. And so that's what I'd like us to do first thing, is to read Matthew 18... And even though I think in the email I said just through verse 17, we're going to read through verse 20. So if I could get uh, a couple of volunteers to read the first, uh, someone to read the first 10 verses. Um, I'm sorry, let's do verses uh, 1 through 9, and then if someone could read 10 through 20. Do we have any volunteers? Okay. Can you do 1 through 9? Thank you, Micah. 10 through 20. So, Matthew 18, 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as the child, this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck, and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
Woe to the world because it's stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly... I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father, who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not hear, Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let them be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So to begin, before we start breaking down the context of this section... We're, we're going to be focusing on, and the book does quite a bit, on verses 15 through 17. But I really appreciate that he, he leads us there. What's, what's the line of thought that Jesus takes in this context to get us to 15 through 17? But before we do that, I want to ask the, the first question that I sent there in the email, which was, how would you answer Cain's question? Am I my brother's keeper? And, if possible, what kind of passages would you use to answer this question? Bueller? Mike? You can see how Joseph, with his brothers, how his brothers did not treat him as a brother, but in the end, <clears throat> Joseph took care of his brothers and watched and provided for them. Oh, interesting. Okay, the example of Joseph. I like that. What else? Matthew twenty-five, where you know you have this final judgment scene, and some are, <coughs> are brought in and some are turned away, and the the basis upon which. Mm. That example is shared. Is is how did you care for your uh, brother in need? 
Right. In as much as you did to the least of me, least of these my brothers. That's uh, thirty-one through forty-six. Yeah, Gary. James five sixteen. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Yes. So that passage is is not just I should be on the lookout for my brothers and sisters, but it's it's a two way street, right? I should then be willing to then confess my own sins. Well, it all goes back to the relationship aspect. You, you yes. need to have a personal relationship with your brother that you can confess these things to one another. Yes. Yep. And then help help them if they're sinning. If you see your brother sinning, help help them. And yes. And and I appreciate if, if if we can keep the right kind of terms in our in our minds, it is tempting to look at that question and go, "Am I responsible for my brother? Am I am I supposed to keep track of my brother or sister?" Um, <clears throat> phrased a different way, should I be helping my brother or sister? What's the answer to that question? Yeah. Obviously. If I see my brother or sister in danger, should I try and keep them safe? Should I protect my brother and sister? Well, we would, those are rhetorical questions. Obviously, we, t- we tend to kind of think of this as just, should I um, confront them about their sins? Um, or am I responsible for their, their spiritual well-being? Uh, should I try to keep them safe? Should I do everything within my power and within my, my God-given realm to try and do what I can to, to help them? Yes. If the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus tells us through the Good Samaritan story that everyone who needs help is our neighbor, right. then that answers that question. Yeah. Uh, Micah? 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, when it talks about us being one body or members one of another... It, it gives examples of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Bob. The story of Esther. She had it good. She didn't need to do all that. Hmm. I like it. Yeah. What else? Woo-hoo. Second Samuel 12. Um, David and Nathan couldn't help but think of that story where Nathan. Of course, God sent Nathan to David, but you know, he said, told him the parable, and then said, "You are the man." So, just talk about confronting someone. Yeah. Even at even, I mean, David being the king, even at the chance of your own hurt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so, because that <laughs> that was a gutsy thing to do to the king, who had already demonstrated himself willing to murder you if you right. opposed him. But it was in David's best interest. And, and uh, yeah, man, that's such a good example. I hadn't thought of that. We know from other passages that there was already an existing relationship between David and Nathan. Right. So it wasn't this guy just popped out of nowhere and confronted David and then, you know. No, there, there was a concern for David, and that's why he did it. Maybe a little twist. You've got Aquila and Priscilla who, yes. you know, who correct Apollos in his teaching. I don't know that we know there was much of a relationship there but uh, they they show their love for him and for the truth in 
in taking him aside and handling that in a what, what appears to be a very loving way. Yes. But uh, you know they are looking after their brother. Right. Yeah. And and uh, I, Acts eighteen. Thank you. Uh, Acts eighteen. I I love that example because it wasn't that you know Apollos was walking around doing sinful things and you know relishing in his unrepentant sin, but he he wasn't speaking the truth and he was doing it in in ignorance. But yeah, his brother and sister came and um, very much in the Matthew 18 took him aside privately. They weren't trying to embarrass him or shame him and gave him, gave him a better understanding of God's truth. Um, I've got a couple of passages uh, and, and they're obviously brought up later in this book, but 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, let's, go ahead and, let's go ahead and turn there. I think it's 12 through 15. Can someone read that for me when we get there? Somebody jump on it. First, First Thessalonians five twelve through fifteen. But we request request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. So, you know, words like admonish the idle, but also encouraging the faint-hearted. How many of us would say, well, I'm, I'm not responsible for that. I don't have Helping the weak, being patient with all. There at the end of 15, seeking to do good to one another and to everyone. So when we see sin in someone's life, it's not good that that remain in their life. Unacknowledged and... Um, without being taken care of. Right. I was thinking yeah. too, sometimes people don't realize that they are sinning. So right. they just keep doing it. But not, you know, especially if you come from the world, you know, you don't necessarily know all of this right away. Sure. And know, I mean, there's some things that are pretty apparent, but there are other things that you might say and do that just never crossed your mind. You right. know, until you, somebody Use of euphemisms. Sure. I mean, there. You know. You think of of Apollos. I, I don't believe that he was intentionally doing what, what he was doing, but that was not within God's will. Um, speaking the truth in love is assuming the best. You're coming to them with the assumption that they they don't realize what they're doing, um, and assume assume that until proven otherwise. Right? Absolutely. And and this that's being that's part of being being patient with them. Um. Yeah. What about, I'm sorry, there was another hand back here. Yeah. I was just making me think of Romans one thirty-two, where it speaks of those who do such things deserving of death, but then also those who approve of such things, those that practice it. And there's a sense of when we don't say anything, or we are silent, that we are giving approval to that. Right. Yeah. There, and that, that is such a fine line, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes our silence and we talked about this, speak the truth in love, 
means that sometimes staying silent is the same as as um, going along with what they're doing. It's the same as approving what, what they're doing. When we know the truth, it needs to be said, and we refuse not to say it, um, we're, we're approving of, of that. But yeah, even that passage, those who practice such things deserve to die. And you could read that and go, serves them right. They made that choice, and death is... But instead, we should go, I don't want them to die. What can I do to prevent that? How can I help them? Um, God says, I can't remember the exact passage in Ezekiel, but God says, I take no desire in the death of the wicked. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Neither should we. So if we see it coming, if we see someone on that path of destruction, um, we should hurt for them, and we should try to to do what we can to, to bring them back. Um, one more passage, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. And again, uh, this is going to be brought up later. A good bit in the book. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I'll be honest, I used to separate those two verses and think that he was talking about two different things. He may be, but I think it does us good to put those things together. Sin is a burden. And sometimes, when we, not sometimes, when we sin, we put a burden on ourselves that is, is, is too heavy for us. It is not something anyone should bear. Not just on you, on your brother, too. And usually our sin then puts burdens on other people. That's right. Sin separates. And so if we can step in, we who are spiritual should, should do our, our utmost to restore them, not in a spirit of, I'm better than you are, I know better and so should you, but in a spirit of gentleness. Also being mindful that when we choose to step into sometimes the the, the, the dirty, the messy, the chaotic life that someone may have be choosing for themselves, we need to keep watch on ourselves so that we don't also fall in while we're trying to dra- save the drowning victim. Um, because we, we are called to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It, it's, it's our responsibility to help each other. So am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, because I'm supposed to love you. The second commandment, I think, is absolutely right. I'm supposed to love you as much as I love myself. I would want someone to do that for me. Yeah, John. And that, that, that second law is, is mentioned just before that in Galatians 5.14. Yes, so yes. He probably is thinking about that as he says, fulfill the law that is summed up in love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Absolutely. I did ask that question in a specific way, rather than feelings, which are important, but not what we should use to determine God's will. Um, This is how I want us throughout this class, and I believe that we've been doing it from the beginning, is we've got a question about how should I respond to someone else? Uh, Am I responsible for for this? What's my approach when we do this? This is how we ought to do that. Because how I feel about it 
even in my own limited experience dealing with this very difficult thing, I have felt very different, <laughs> different ways throughout, throughout my experience dealing with, with those close to us in unrepentant sin. There are some times I, I don't want anything to do with them. I don't feel like talking to you right now, or for a long time. That's not how we determine what's in their best interest. We look at how did, how did Christ deal with those? Well, if Christ can ask God to forgive those who are putting nails in his hands while they're doing it, I, I don't have any right to let my feelings guide um, how I respond to those um, who are wrong in me. Great. Yeah, I think I think it's important too, which I think we're doing, we're, we're trying to do as we go through this class. But to remember that, even though some of these verses may apply to our interaction with people in the world, we're focusing on those people that we know that love God or that profess to love God and are professing to try to do His will. Yes, and we're trying to help them in that regard, or people are trying to help us in that regard. So this isn't necessarily in there again, you know, that's the focus. We're not looking at, should I be, as soon as I see somebody in the world doing something right. wrong, should I go and try to correct them? Yes. No, this class and what this is focused on is those people that we know and love and are, are, um, are striving to, to help and measure. Absolutely, absolutely. Am I my brother's keeper? And, and right. when Jesus used that term in Matthew 18, he's, he's specifically talking about people who are disciples of, of Christ, people who have already committed themselves to that, and then make decisions to live in a way that's not Christ-like. Um, you're absolutely right. It is, it is not our responsibility to go chase after every sinful person in, in the world and make sure everyone knows that what they're doing is sinful and wrong. And um, We are responsible for going out and evangelizing to those people, but it's a, di- it's a different, kind of, right. different kind of discussion. Absolutely right. And, and we do need to keep that in mind. So how does, coming back to Matthew 18, how does studying the context of Matthew 18 help us better understand the instruction in verses 15 through 17? So based on what we read in this chapter, what were some takeaways that, that you found helpful? I like the way he summarized the chapter you know, in a phrase. It's, it's about relationships in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's helpful to see all of what is shared in this chapter, which has a very definite beginning and end, as he well pointed out. Yes. Uh, as you look at 18.1 and 19.1, he starts a new section and then it ends. But that, that whole discourse uh, may, may be looked at as, you know, all about relationships. Yes. Um, so John pointed out in 18.1 it said... Um, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest? Um, yeah, at that time. So he began this discourse at the beginning of 19. It said, when Jesus had finished these sayings. So there are these kind of bookends. So viewing this whole thing as a single discourse really does kind of change um, change the way we sometimes pull out these smaller sections. Well, and I think it's interesting too, because if you look at the end of 17... Christ is talking about his death in the cross. So 17, yes. 22, and 23. And so here you have Jesus that is talking about crosses, and immediately his disciples are speaking about thrones, right? Yeah. So you have selflessness. All of a sudden now they're talking about selfishness. And yes. so I think this idea of am I my brother's keeper 
No, it's not selfishness. It's still selflessness, and that is part of you know our cross. If what we're alive to bear is to help those that need help and take on their burdens if we need to to help them. Yeah, absolutely. Because we defined love last time in a variety of ways, but one of the ways is doing what's in the best interest of the other person. Not in my best interest, because my best interest usually would be just to keep my mouth shut, keep my own nose clean, and press on forward. Uh, but that is not, that is really not um, what Jesus is is wanting us to understand. So how, do, how does he demonstrate that in the beginning part of chapter 18, this idea of selflessness and humility. So who is the greatest? It's not the best preachers. It's not the people who convert and baptize the most people. It's this little child. What what about that little child is he wanting us to understand is important in the kingdom of God? I think this was a key point that I thought was really good. Yes. It's not about innocence. Yes. It's about humility. And, and we know that because he says it in verse 4. Yeah. So there is a temptation, because I've heard great lessons right. about, well, what is it about uh, a child that is commendable? And there's plenty about children that are commendable. Most children are pretty honest with you. And I can appreciate, at, at least in earlier stages, kids are brutally honest. And I can applaud that. A lot of children are innocent, and we can appreciate that and, and hopefully emulate that. But that's not what Jesus pulled the child toward him to demonstrate. It was a child's humility. It's the person who says, I'm not the best thing that has happened to the kingdom of God. I am not, I am not one of the top members of this particular congregation. It's the one who says, I, I am no greater than anyone else around me. I am a servant in the Lord's service. And the kingdom of heaven doesn't revolve around me. So he's trying to correct a, a misconception that they have, that they're all vying for positions so that they can be the greatest. He starts this discourse by saying, no, it's those who are humble. Where does he go from there? And he's still using a child. Our interactions with such people, whether we are in verse 5, receiving a little child or putting a stumbling block in the path of one of these little ones. Yes. And this, again, was very helpful. The, the, the book, I appreciate very much. Oftentimes, we read those verses, 5 and 6, and say, therefore, we need to be really thoughtful about small children. And we get lost, as is the tendency, we get lost in the illustration and we forget who's he talking about. Those who are in the kingdom are like little children. So this is how we need to treat such people. It's obviously true. We need to be thoughtful and kind to little children. Um, but what he's saying here is, in the kingdom of God, those who are humble, those who are servants of mine, this is how you ought to treat them. Whoever receives people like this, in my name, receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones, one of these humble children in my service, to stumble or puts a kind of temptation in front of him, <laughs> Jesus didn't mince words sometimes. It's, it would be better if someone put an incredibly heavy thing around your neck and threw you in the sea. 
It's that serious to God if we mistreat those who are in his kingdom, those who are in his care. What else? Well, I think the thought, too, that by not receiving them, by not uh, accepting them as he suggested as infinitely valuable, that that can be a way that we put a stumbling block in front of them. Versus just encouraging them to sin or, you know, some other uh, thing. Yes. Yeah, so contextually, that would be perhaps one way that we put that stumbling block. Yeah, so verse 5 is, is one thing that Jesus commends, and then he, can, he discourages them from something in verse 6. First of all, we need to receive them. We need to be willing to accept them, not on our own conditions, I think they'd be valuable to this group. Therefore, I'm going to let them assemble with us. We should accept them in in Jesus' name the same way that he has accepted us. And also, we need to make sure that we're not setting any kind of temptation or, or difficulty in front of them. Verse 10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Or other versions say, See that you don't look down on. Right. Right. Please don't ask me to explain the end of verse 10. Um, Other than to say, Jesus is reminding them that God knows and sees how we treat one another. He's aware. He's aware. And that should help us in our interactions with, with others to know that that God places great value on every single sheep in his flock. God places great value on every child he's ever created. Therefore, we should accept them and and welcome them um, and do what we can that is in their best interest. So then he introduces a parable in verses 12 and through 14. Before we go there, can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. So... Verses 3, 4, and 5, he's talking, he brings a little child, right? Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones, verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. I've heard multiple sermons discussing whether these little ones is referring back to the children, referring to a brother. Mm-hmm. And your thoughts? My thought is, is that based on verse 6, I think it's referring to little ones in the kingdom, meaning those that are, we're all little compared to Christ, right, who is the king of the kingdom. Um, And so, you know, I've heard people try to get around that by saying that he keeps using this term little ones, he's referring to these children, and how we need to treat those that are young and and growing. but I typically, and the way I see it right now is I think he's talking about those that are, because the kingdom is, technically the kingdom hasn't even officially been established yet. It's in the process, right? Where He's laying the foundation for this kingdom. And so everybody in this kingdom is going to be a little one or a child in the kingdom. So. In, in this context. In yes, this, in this yes, context. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I agree with you. I believe that the author does as well, uh, for what it's worth, that... In, in the context, 
the question started with what? The chapter started with what question? Who's, Who's the greatest in the, in the kingdom? Right. I don't believe that Jesus then starts talking about parenting. He brings in a child as an example to answer the question. So who is the greatest in the kingdom? And, and as John mentioned, I think a better, I think a better uh, subtitle to this chapter is kingdom relationships. That's what this whole chapter is about. What kind of people are the people in this kingdom? How do those people treat each other? And Jesus uses a couple of different examples. He starts with a child, but then he starts talking about sheep. And so in the same way that I don't think we need to get stuck on 12 through 14 and say Jesus is obviously giving his instruction on how to take care of animals, we shouldn't get stuck on the illustration of Jesus is obviously talking about how we should. Should we care for animals? Yes. Should we be mindful and take care of and be thoughtful of children? Absolutely. But the point here is who's in the kingdom and what do they, what do they, what do they look like? How do they act? How do they treat each other? And so, he gives this example. If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, and he does this, it's a rhetorical question. Does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? The obvious answer is, of course he does. That sheep is so valuable to him that he'll do something that seems fairly dangerous. He'll even, for a time leave the 90 and 9, trust that they will be okay in his absence, because this one is so valuable to him. And if he finds it, in verse 13, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. There are times where the good shepherd is going to say, I, I have got to do what I can to go and find the sheep. At whatever cost... Uh, to, to the shepherd as, as much as within his ability. On page 71, I'll be honest, uh, I'm not sure exactly um, whether I'm in line with, with how the, the, the author interprets this. I think we come to the same conclusion. But in that, in that last paragraph, Jesus then gives them a more uh, memorable illustration of, of this concern for all of his followers in the parable of the lost sheep. Skipping down a little bit, it's important to note that the point of this parable is not, as is often supposed, to demonstrate that Jesus, or God, is the good shepherd who cares for every one of his sheep. While that is the point of the lost sheep parable in the context of Luke 15, that isn't the case here. True, God is concerned for the welfare of each of his sheep, but this context points out that going after the lost sheep is the responsibility of the, of the church. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. The good shepherd motif represents the concern that Jesus expects every believer to have for every other believer. In this sense, we are to be keepers of one another. And maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. I'm not sure. What are, you, what are your thoughts on, on this passage and its context and uh, his conclusion there? I like, I like thinking about the little ones as he suggested in verse 10 as even the most insignificant because if you think about the hundred sheep 
it would be easy to think, I've got 99. One is not a big deal. That one is insignificant compared to the 99. And the point of the parable is, no, that one is important that no and as he again as he said no one is dispensable no one is expendable yeah. and that parable seems to really bring that idea yes again uh, whether the question is 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 that important maybe i'm not laying out his thought clearly enough he's basically saying because this parable goes right into instruction for us on how we should treat lost sheep basically that, that he wants to put ourselves into the position of the shepherd. Whether Jesus, when he told this parable, had himself in mind as the good shepherd, in the same way that he did when he told this in a different circumstance in Luke, or he's saying, look, as, as any of you would, as a shepherd, do this with your own sheep, I think the point is the same. We are to emulate the example of Christ. And so as he has done with his sheep, we ought to do with the sheep among us. How do we do that? He gets very detailed and very specific in verse 15. So if a brother sins against you, some translations simply say, if your brother sins, and we'll talk more about that in the next chapter, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen... Take one or two others among you, along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he listens, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets real hard. The next chapter will break this down much more specifically. This, this chapter, chapter 6, is understanding the broader context. But what are, what, are your, what are your thoughts and your understanding of those two verse, three verses in the broader context of kingdom relationships? That it involves humility, that it involves uh, concern for one another, that everyone is valuable. What do you think? And why is it urgent? What's, what's not said in the parable of the lost sheep but is implied about the condition of that sheep? Without its shepherd, by itself, that sheep is probably going to die. In fact, they're on mountains, <laughs> it says. That sheep is not going to survive on its own. And so there is a sense of urgency where, uh, 
He'll come home. He'll figure it out. I don't want to impose. I don't want to risk the relationship here. No, there's, there's a sense of urgency. But I, you're right. It is balanced with humility. Because sometimes, even in, in our best efforts, our urgency sounds like uh, harshness and strictness and, and an unloving spirit. Because we see the urgency and we want to shake you and say, what are you thinking? Get back away from the edge. You know, and that's, no, there's a humility of, look, we are in this together. There are times where I'm on the other side of this equation and I needed someone to do this with me and I'm trying to help you. There's danger. Can you see it? Can I help you see it? The, the, you know, the, the shepherd wants us to come back. Um, but there is a, there is, we must understand the inherent danger of, of leaving, uh, leaving the flock. Great. Yeah, Mike. It's interesting that different versions of that story uh, read a little bit differently. Because in the uh, New King James and some of the other, um, I will call more traditional versions, um, he says... If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek? So the oh, yes. idea is, is that maybe he's got his one hundred sheep at home in his sheepfold, and one wanders away and leaves. So he leaves the flock together to kind of protect themselves in the sheepfold hmm. to go search the one. I. The other way almost seems weird that he would leave the ninety and not, or leave the ninety nine unprotected to go, and so depending on how you read it, I think you can draw a different conclusion. Yes, and I think there's a very close correlation as well to the eldership here, and he talks about the eldership a lot, obviously in this book, mm-hmm. where if the if we look at the elders as the shepherd, right, the shepherd of the flock, sometimes they may have to trust that. The flock in general will take care of themselves for the short time that they have to go and spend going after the one that has wandered away and spend time with that with that person or with that mm-hmm. sheep. So I see some very close correlations to some other um, applications here as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and the book will get into yes. so the, certainly. Um, yeah, and I am I am not a sheep expert, <laughs> um, but I will say um, in that region. There are very few places that are just flat right. pasture lands. Most of it is mountains and valleys, some of which are treacherous. But I will say, in my limited experience over there, you will see sheep walking around and climbing around mountains completely unattended. And they are relatively safe. Um, because they're, they're just used to that region. But you're, you're absolutely right. The point, whether it's coming from the mountains or going on, on the mountains, um, there is an understanding that there will be time where, um, whether it's an eldership or whether it's individuals, because that's what's being talked about in 15 through, right. through 17, where our focus is going to need to, at times, step away from something else because we've really got to invest in this thing. We have to trust that the flock will feed on itself, yes. not literally, but to take care of itself, right? Yes. While we, or the elders, whoever, have to go and do that as yes. well. Yeah. Yeah. I do just want to make this one quick point in the, in the remaining time that we have. Again, we're going to delve much deeper into 15 through 17 in the next chapter, in chapter 7. <clears throat> but based on the understanding of this parable, 
How, how do I want to ask this? What can we not conclude in, in specific ways when we're talking about going to a brother or sister in unrepentant sin and looking at this parable in, in 12 through 14? What do we not see the shepherd doing with that sheep? Ignoring him? Ignoring him, right? The shepherd is aware, and he's not saying, he'll figure it out. You're right. He goes after, but specifically in verse 13. Is there a guaranteed outcome with this sheep? If he should find it. If he finds it. This is what the shepherd's going to do. There are times where we go out and we're trying to restore a lost sheep. Is there a guarantee from this parable that those, those actions will be successful every single time? We'll bring that one back to the hundred. I wish I could say, the answer is yes, of course. We just got to do what Jesus did because Jesus obviously had had 100% success bringing people into his fold, right? Even among his 12, he didn't have 100% success. And I can only imagine the prayers that Jesus put forward for people like Judas. And the attempts that he made to encourage that person. But at the end of the day, we do not see the shepherd going after that sheep and dragging them back to the fold, kicking and screaming. We don't. We don't see the, 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 in the, the parable of the prodigal son. We don't see the father chase his son down to the city and rip him out of that mire and say, you are coming home. We, we don't. We see a father who is so ready for him to be back that you can see, I imagine him like down by the mailbox. He's looking out by the road and he is ready. So that as soon as he catches a glimpse of him, he's running after him. But we don't see the father dragging that sinner home. And so when we approach a brother and sister, and this is what's painted for us in verses 15 through 17, we may go and tell him his fault, and God willing, he listens and we've gained our brother. Praise God for that. That's the outcome that we want. What happens if that brother or sister says, I don't want that. I don't want to come back. Well, we try. We try again. We try with some others to help us. I think not only are they there to be witnesses, but I would, I would strongly recommend those be people that, that have wisdom. Maybe they can offer a, a tactic that you haven't tried. They can... Um, be there as emotional support because it's going to be incredibly difficult. You bring those kind of people and you try again. And what if they say no? You try again. You involve more of the church. You make sure that they are aware. And what if they say no? What does verse 17 say we're supposed to do? That's a bummer way to end a class. Treat them differently. Treat them differently. It does not say you keep hounding them until they come back. And it also doesn't say you ignore them exactly right. for the rest of your life. That's exactly right. 
It doesn't say, you go leave that, like that one, you'll find them in a crevice one day, that sheep, and you'll think serves them. No. But looking at this passage and others throughout the rest of this class, we will figure out where that balance is, where God wants us to be. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Am I to be held responsible when they choose to reject the truth? If I've given my best attempt based on God's example to bring them to a knowledge of the truth and they still choose of their own accord not to accept it, I'm not going to be held responsible for that. But you better believe every single one of us had, tr- had better try everything we can to encourage them to come back. And we'll dig deeper into that in chapter 7 of the book. Thank you, guys.